0: hi everyone welcome to caroline talks i'm your host Carolyn heinz film critic and journalist and this is the podcast that's youtube channel where I speak to film creatives they work in the industry and what inspires them and today i am joined by fil- filmmaker marlon ransom and his son Tyler Ransom to talk about a documentary in the shed which chronicles Tyler's experience with a chronic illness called nephrotic syndrome and his love of jujitsu as well as as jazz music and how that inspires him and also how it relates to his illness and I'm actually so glad that I'm getting to speak to both of you because I don't know if you know this but I'm, I'm chronically ill as well I have multiple sclerosis so I have relapse remitting multiple sclerosis which is a chronic illness and like Tyler's condition is an invisible disability as well, so I always try to speak to people who I who have films about chronic illness because it helps to bring awareness. And I, and that's one of the main reasons that you created this film in the shed, Marlon and Tyler, is to bring awareness about this disease, nephrotic syndrome, which I actually have heard about before because I knew of a little boy back home in Barbados who actually had it years ago. So when I saw it, I was like, okay, I know what this is, but I also got to learn more about it as well as Tyler and your family and his love of jazz. And I can't wait to talk to the both of you. But as usual, i like to have my guests say a bit about themselves first. So for you, Tyler, I want you to talk a bit about yourself and what it was like for you to have your dad make this documentary about you. And then for you, Marla, to talk about what I inspired you to create this documentary, because this isn't actually the first, based on what I've seen in the documentary, this isn't the first video journaling that you've done of Tyler's experience so Tyler
1: will go with you first that was such a nice introduction oh thank you um it was it was really nice having the support of my father and my whole family documenting this process since growing up our whole thing was spreading awareness and ways that we can help improve the lives of others as well as myself so finally having this this platform to do it and The support of my father, it was it was really inspiring to me and to everyone who helped out. And I'm really happy with with how it turned out and I'm just so excited to to talk about it and that my father's here. I don't really do podcasts with him. So this is gonna be really fun to hear his thoughts and everything as well.
0: (laughs) And for you, Marlon.
1: Well, I have
2: to tell you, I did not know that you had uh MS. Mm. That's really um gives you a different take, I'm sure, on what you saw when you watched the documentary. Um, so I'm interested in hearing your actual story, to be honest with you. Gotcha. So I, I have to ask again, what's your question? You asked, you're asking. Um,
0: what inspired me based on what I've seen in the documentary. This documentary is like pieced together with various um journal video journals you've done of um Tyler's um experience with nephrotic syndrome, but as well as his his um, love of jujitsu and jazz, but what made you decide, I'm gonna make a full documentary because it's practically a feature length because it's just over 50 minutes long. So it's not a a short film at all. So what is for you to say, you know what, I'm gonna make a full length documentary about my son's life.
2: Well, that's a great question. Uh, Well, it started with journaling, as you called video journaling, vlogging, what people call today. From when Tyler was very young, like five, six years old. And that that stemmed from the fact that I enjoy being in control mm-hmm. on pretty much every aspect of my life to the best of my ability. And this was something I had no control over. So as as Tyler would have relapses and be in the hospital, I did not like the fact that I could not help him. I had to listen to doctors and then I who I which I'm not even going to get on that topic. But so I just tried to figure out what can I control. Mm -hmm. And so then I started filming things and trying to just instill positiveness into him and that, hey, we're going to win no matter what, whatever win means to 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 him or to me at that time was just being in control, if that makes any sense. So as as he got older, or he kind of outgrew the website we created called HealingTyler.com, which I always asked him, like, are you comfortable being filmed on this or like you have a relapse? Are you comfortable if I take pictures of you? And cause I want, it was equal involvement, so to speak. And as he got older and kind of outgrew the healing Tyler website, I had all of this footage, not all that had been released. And I just tried to figure out what could we do collectively to help more people because we, Hey, he had a large community. He had built up throughout the years from doing jujitsu from the videos we'd send out. I mean, a lot of the videos had been, and I apologize for being long winded, but a lot of the videos had been um, nephrologists from different countries like Vietnam, India, Israel, Sweden had reached out and had, dubbed his videos into their language Mm -hmm. and using them to show to parents and family members, um, who, whose kids were suffering from nephrotic syndrome as well. Because what I found is a lot of times people, if you look at Tyler now, you don't see someone who's fighting a chronic illness. People would go, he doesn't look sick. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that was family members. So they could watch a video of Tyler talking about it or being, Um, in a full on relapse. And those family members would see someone else suffering and go, wow, I get it now. So my idea was, how could I find a way to piece all this footage um, together? And so that's what I did. Let's let me get Tyler and Skyler, his sister, to do a long form interview, and then intermittently cut in place, edit things into it. So that's the, the long answer.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to touch on some things that you mentioned, but one of the things you said there just now was about being in control. And I know, and that's something that is, that I noticed very early on in the film, because like you, at the, t- at the top of the film, like after his mom brings him home and like, she's like, he's swollen and like, she doesn't, she did not understand. Like when you, there's a scene where you take him to the hospital and you say that you started to take photographs because you wanted to have the, you wanted to be able to hold the medical staff at the hospital accountable if something went wrong with your son. And I thought that's something that's so, especially now with the, I guess you could say almost like the political climate and the social awareness of, ad, of personal advocacy, you know, and personal agency when it comes to the medical field, because Black people, people of color, are, we we are still dismissed by medical staff, you know, especially in North America, like you guys are in the U.S., but I live here in Canada. And I've had my own personal experiences with medical staff, with doctors, dismissing my pain and dismissing my concerns and not listening to me fully. So when you talked about taking the picture and you're like, if something goes wrong, I'm going to have you, 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 and you. I have evidence that you were here and you guys can't lie and say that no one without who was involved wasn't. And I thought that was so important, especially because Tyler was like two years old at the time. So talk about that aspect of having control over even though we, you as a parent don't have like actual control in a medical emergency, because the only person who the only people who can have any kind of quote unquote control is the medical staff because they're the ones who know about the medications that need to be administered, what IV drips to use, you know, like what medications to use. So like you, you don't have any saying that, but you are like, I can at least document what's happening. So talk about beginning your, um, your experience as Tyler's father, and his chronicler at that point.
2: Well, you know, <laughs> I'm laughing because you, you just brought up the most polarizing point, the pol- most polarizing scene point, whatever you want to call it, of the documentary. And it's been split. Uh, wow, well, it's this political topic by race, meaning mm-hmm. there's some, I got a lot of pushback, not personally to my face, but online from people who'd send emails who would talk about, look at this aggressive man. Uh, Oh my God, I can't believe it. And I said, it's interesting because I think if I was someone uh, with less melanin, I think they would (laughs) go, what a strong, engaged father. yeah, I wasn't playing. You know what I mean? Like, that's my son. And I was letting them all know, including the person who cleaned, the who was cleaning the room. Everybody, somebody, so, if something happens to my son, something's going to happen to everyone in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a watered down version of what I said. So anyway, <laughs> if that answers your question.
0: It does. And for you, Tyler, like, what have you learned from your father? Because there's many things that I will discuss. But one of, but what have you learned from your father with regards to having that kind of agency around your own health care and being? I know that you, especially now that you're older, you know you're in university and like you're when you were discussing things with the doctors, you're able to have to speak for yourself. as before, like, it would have been your parents because like you're you were a minor. You don't you, as a minor, you don't really have must say legally and what goes on with you medically, like your parents will ask your opinions, the doctors will discuss with you, like as we saw in the film, like the doctors explain everything to you, but now that you're older and you're more aware of what it actually means to have advocacy and agency over your own health issues and over your own body and how you can relate to doctors, what have you learned about that process throughout the years, especially at watching your parents speak for, on your behalf to the medical staff?
1: Uh, It was really, it was really wild. I think I took it for granted growing up because as I became an adult and went to my first few doctor visits alone, um, they didn't really just, they didn't really feed me the information. It was more so they just threw it at me. And I was so used to, to my dad acting as, as a filter and and basically, digesting what they say and filtering it for me in in terms that I could that I could take in. So, not having that for like the first the first few doctor visits, I was like, "What do they say? What's what's happening?" So, I had to call them afterwards and and tell them that this was happening and what I should do. But it was it was very eye opening because even in cases where I'm not at the doctor's office, but where I'm at school and I feel like asking a question and I don't really have the strongest agency. Um, I don't know if you could tell, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty laid back and calm. And I don't really, I don't really have the strong presence that my dad does, but growing up, I've learned to, to follow that gut feeling and, and to take, take what you want. Essentially, I don't know closed mouths don't get fed. And that was always a lesson. My father, my father showed me. To- <laughs> Display. Oh,
0: for sure. Yeah. for sure my my mother said my mom i would used to say if i was close I must don't get fed um but the the thing about i think for people with chronic illness in particular is like we have to see the doctors so often you mm-hmm. know and like sometimes the, the doctors that's and like when i watch med i don't i been even when i watch medical shows now and i already watch most medical shows now because like i know it's all lies and like it's drama, but the way how the medical system operates and how the doctors and like things like surgeries are done, was, I'm like, that's the whole life. That's not what happens. <laughs> and like, but but the thing about being chronically ill, like you get to you have to know so much about your body. You know, we have to learn to listen to our bodies and we have to learn when not to overdo it. You know, we have to learn, and I think that that to me that ties into agency, not only with regards to medical. Um, with med, um, medical professionals but also with ourselves you know because the doctors and the nurses and the specialists will tell us okay don't get stressed out don't overdo it physically because that could trigger a relapse you know that could stress out your body don't mm-hmm. do these kind of things but it takes mm-hmm. it can take years to learn how to actually pinpoint when our bodies are when it's just too much for our bodies it's like it's like for me still i'm 39 but still and i was diagnosed in 2017. And I was experiencing symptoms from like long before, but I still, I'm still learning when my body is sending me signals to pull back, you know, I'm still learning that, okay, this tiredness that I'm feeling, this fatigue that I'm feeling, isn't just my chronic fatigue. This is signs of an impending relapse if I don't check myself. So for you, Tyler, talk about how you've learned to, how you're learning to listen to your body more. You know, especially because you you take part in a, such a physical sport like jujitsu. jitsu is a, a sport where you sweat a lot, which is something that like that our bodies lose like fluids when we sweat a lot. But when you're doing a sport like that, contact sport like that, your body is put through more stress than if you were doing like a, re- a typical like a regular like sport. And that like, you have to learn to listen to your body more. So, like, what for you was what have you learned about your body so far?
1: One of the biggest things for me is actually checking my urine. Um, I've been doing that since a kid. So every day I have to go pee in the morning. And I could tell now basically by the color of it what kind of day it's going to be. Mm. Um, normally when it's really dark, I'm like, oh man, so it's a lot of protein. And then that's when Very I really nice. catch myself and I'm like, oh, like I feel lightheaded. Like, I think today like I need to rest. Or... In other cases when my pee comes out and it's clear, I'm like, okay, like that's why I, I didn't wake up with any fatigue and like I feel fine. And even doing jujitsu and things like that, I think it was sometimes my body would, would feel like it's not it's not up to do anything, but my mind my ego would like be like, nah, like I have to show this white belt how we do it. <laughs> and um I don't know, growing up I had to find that balance and be like, okay, as much as I need to like calm my ego down and really listen to how my body's doing and that that required a lot of meditating off the mat and and looking for signs like my hands don't grip as strong or my legs feel a bit more heavier than normal but key things like that i've, I've picked up throughout the years that i still use today to to get a key feeling on how how the day is going to be
0: mm. And for you, Marlon, and this is a question I don't often get to ask to people because most of the people that I know are chronically ill are like grown adults, you know. So they don't have it, like like I don't know their parents, and and like they don't really need their parents to like speak for them because again, their parents are like also super old too. But um, but for you as a parent of a child who is chronically ill, what have you learned about being a support system without being an overbearing support system? Because there's a to me, there's a very fine line between being supportive and then being you know overbearing like I'm as I said I'm 39 my mom just turned 70 and she still thinks <laughs> I'm a child she'll tell me things I'm like mom I know my body at first and first I'm like first of all you're in Barbados you can't come and tell me what, I, what I, can, I can't do but she's still like she's still always like super concerned she'll come and tell me she'll look at the weather forecast and say you know I was like it's going to be very sunny today you have to watch this up because like for MS like For the type of MS I have, I have intolerance, which means I can get these strokes very easily. I, my body can't, like my body temperature naturally is higher than normal. So like my, my natural body temperature is 99.1 degrees, whereas the the natural normal baseline body temperature for most people is 98.3. So I'm already like above normal. So then once it gets higher, I have to make sure that I stay cool, that I don't, I'm not out in the sun too much, you know, like I actually swell up. Once I get, um, if I get heat intolerance, if I start to get a, a thing, because my hands start to swell up my legs and my arms swell up. And then that makes it kind of difficult. It's kind of like you tailor, like my legs actually, it's like actually painful to walk. So, but my mom, so she called me from in Barbados and tell me the temperature is going to be like so-and-so in Canada today. You need to be careful. And I'd be like, mm, and I have to bring re- myself in and I tell myself, she's loving, you know, she just, she's just concerned for you. But for you, Marlon, now, especially now that Tyler's getting older, he's an adult, he's at school, he's all across, all the way across the other side of the country from where you are. Like, how have you learned to like, toe that line of like not being like too smothering as a parent? Especially these things too, as you say, like to be in control.
2: (laughs) Well, I have to say, first of all, respect to your mom. And so many people do not have parents and do not have parents that are engaged in their lives. So when you said that, I didn't hear someone overbearing. I heard someone who's loving. And See, i said, that's well, the difference. Mom, I'm the child and you're
0: a person. You get it. I,
2: I wish I had had a mother like you have. I didn't have that. So that's the first thing I'd say to you personally. Um, in reference to your question, I, when you say overbearing, I i guess I'd have to ask you, what do you mean when you say that Exactly.
0: Okay, well, I well, I guess it's because that's a phrase that Bajans use a lot. So when I say overbearing, like, first instance, um, let me, how would how, how I explain it? So, like, we're almost, okay, Like so, like, using my mom as the example, like, for me, sometimes I understand, like, you know, I understand she's my mom and she's concerned and she's showing that concern and that's actually- And she actually loves a, you. And she loves me and that's actually a benefit and a privilege, as you are saying, like, not everyone has that. But then- also like it comes to a point where she's also trying to control what i do even though she's not in the same country where she's like trying to tell me don't go outside don't do this don't do that you know so like it's like it's like there there is a difference between showing concern and then being (laughs) overly concerned and then being controlling and i have
2: to i understand your question i understand your question and i can answer it i can tell you that from when tyler was very young I always, even when we went to the doctor and a shout out to his two main nephrologists he's had, Dr. Camille and Dr. Pulianda, um, who are like a part of our family, but it didn't just start out like that. It, you know, it took a lot of back and forth and mutual respect, whatever else you have, however else you want to frame that. But I always had Tyler and his sister like, okay, go research the labs uh, so they could know when I was talking to the doctors, what we're talking about, like research, when they're talking about your spilling protein, look at the labs and see what it is. So my job as, as both of my child's parents was to teach them to be on their own. As I always would say to them, what would happen if I'm no longer here? I want you to be able to function seamlessly. So, and Tyler and I wrote a book together and, I learned begrudgingly that he, who is very much unlike me, whereas his sister is very much like me, uh, Tyler is very calm. He's his, you know, he's very chill. I'm not. So I had to learn to respect him more so in the book writing process would. And when he wanted to do something that I didn't agree with, I had to learn to compromise mm-hmm. Um and when he'd like playing music, I'd say, I really like this song. You should redo this. And he would push back. Uh, and so I had to learn to respect him. And as he's gotten older and lives across, you know, he lives in New York. I live in, in Los Angeles. Uh, it's more along the lines of there's mutual respect, I would think. And I allow him to do, have his space to be him. Uh, He has no choice but allow me to be me. And I I don't really think there was ever really overbearing. I think there was, as he would know, there was love. There was love from a dad who wanted to make sure my son had and still has more opportunities than I've ever had. So I think it's probably a better question for him to ask if I've ever been overbearing or if I am or it's probably a better question for him.
1: Tyler. Hey.
0: <laughs> you want to answer your dad? You want to ask your, answer your dad's question?
1: <laughs> I don't think it was ever overbearing. I think it was me just learning how, how to live with, with training wheels and knowing inside when it was time for me to take them off. Mm. Um, yeah. I never took any of it for granted. It was it was really nice having that because I also recognized that a lot of people didn't have that because growing up, whenever I, w- I would talk to friends, they'd, they'd make it a point to emphasize that they they weren't that close with their father. So I think in turn that made me take what many would probably consider him being overbearing as just how how my dad is. It was a gift. Mm, was yeah, it his, just being you know. present. Yeah, just being present, but that's, that's how I would answer that question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, and and like as you said, just now, Marlon, like you learn, you have to learn how to get to this place during the book writing process. In your book, I'm um, chronically positive. So talk about this book and what i um, started the the this and I, you know what that I'm thinking, I'm and even thinking about it and hearing both of you discuss um Tyler's personality as being more laid back, being more relaxed. I think even the title of the book kind of describes your personality, Tyler. We're like because you're morally about like you take things more positively or you're the kind of person that'm I'm, I'm sensing that is not is not just overly optimistic but you're the first you're, you're you're the person to look to the positive side of things first you know like you're I'm a half of a glass half full kind of guy rather than half empty like there's always I'm, and I'm kind of the same when people say oh you know this is a terrible situation my first reaction was at least there's a silver lining here somewhere there has to be.
1: You and, get and it. That, yeah.
0: yeah yeah and for like being chronically ill um like the world is still learning how to like not see disability as a bad thing you know as like not this thing that stifles your life and this thing that ends your life in that is like oh you're like oh my gosh I have a chronic illness oh boy it's me it's like you have to learn how to like get up every day and like do this thing you know like you have to learn how to live and, and um and I think that's the aspect of, of like just the book title alone is just saying you're chronically ill, but you have to be positive about the situation. You know, you have to always be positive about being chronically ill. Like, cause for me, I see it as I, like, I always try to, even there are days when I'm just tired. I'm like, I'm, I, cause I have chronic fatigue and there, there are days where I'm just like, I'm always, I'm so tired of being tired, but I'm still able to find something to smile about. I'm still able to find something to be positive about. I'm still finding find things to be, Um, positive about so for you Tyler like what 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 went in the book writing process what was it the thing that you learned the most not only about yourself but also maybe about your dad or about how people view people with chronic illnesses
1: I think one of the big thing one of the biggest things I've learned was was the value of patience Mm -hmm. not even with the writing process with my father and I but when talking to my friends about my illness and what we were doing with the book—they didn't really understand. And in the healing Tyler days, in the days, um, even now when I tell people about my illness, I—I I look at—I look at it as a as a teaching tool. And I think writing the book, I was able to realize that while I can teach it to them, they'll never really understand. But with time, they'll—they'll they'll learn to to proper understand where I'm coming from a bit more. And I think I saw some of that with my dad as well, whilst we were writing. Cause if you read the book, I I think it's pretty obvious when you could tell his parts versus mine, because his parts are a bit more him and my parts are a bit more, you know, mine. But I just really learned just the really valuing time and patience with others and yourself and giving your yourself the time to really feel things out.
0: And Marlon, what did you learn about yourself and about your son and, and, and about people with chronic illnesses while you were writing, while you were in the process of writing the book with Tyler?
2: Well, you know, my, my main focus has always been to that to put chronic illness, not in the front, so to speak, or I think I've always told Tyler since like age five or probably younger, do not let this illness define you. This, this illness is not who you are. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that first and foremost, but I can also say that he taught me, I learned a lot about him because we're most definitely not alike. Like there's times like uh, there was one specific time which I still have the picture, but it's in the car because I always keep it with me. When he was like in the fifth grade and he had had a relapse, and I'm I'm going to where your question is. Yeah, was no, fine. Yeah, day, and he and it was right before picture day, like two weeks before. So I already knew, you know. He does. he's not going to want his picture taken like this. So, I, of course, I'm that guy, as you, as you know. I went to the principal and, okay, the principal said, it's-, it's okay if he takes his picture later. So I let him know that. But then on picture day, he got up and was putting on his good clothes. And I'm like, you know, what are you doing? And, and he said, you know, how I look is not who I am. And I remember, I've never cried in front of uh, Tyler, but I've cried when I went to the bathroom because I was like, damn, he's actually listened to me. You know, and he said, my friends know who I am. And for people that don't know, you know, they can ask and I'll tell them why my face looks like this. Um, so it was interesting writing the book because some of the topics and things he did, like he said, the first thing I do is I put I make a expiration date. And I was like, you know, like I was legit, legitimately wondering what is he talking about? And he said, to like, you know, I'm I'm sad for two days and then I'm done And I don't revisit it. I don't like, you know, three days later, go back to being sad again. I'm like, I'm going to give myself two days to be super sad. And I just thought to myself, wow, I, I never, I never would have thought of this as a kid. I was sad, period. So I learned a lot about how his coping mechanisms in reference to like, you know, of course, I'm, I'm his father. So I'm going to the hospital with him and I'm angry and whatever else emotions I'm having. But I learned the emotions he was having which was very interesting. Okay, how is he processing all this? I knew how I was processing it as his, as his father. But so I think that's what I learned. I learned a lot about how he copes. And then I thought of ways I could use some of those tactics, if you will, myself in just everyday life. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd say.
0: Hmm. And and we've talked a bit about both of you. And I want to talk about your, um, about your sister, Skyler, because I thought it was interesting that she's she's not only because she's your sister, but she she kind of works. I think um, like I was surprised to see her being the person that asked you the questions in the documentary. And then when we got to see the the various um, video journals throughout um your, the years, like she she's she's in them a lot, I and mean, she we get to hear her talk about you. And then she's also asking you those questions even when she was young. So I want to know like your relationship with your sister and how she has helped you as an older brother, of course, but then also just as you, Tyler, and being a support system for you, because I, I just think it's, I think it's actually amazing that she has such an interactive part of your life in, in, with regards to your illness, because there will be, there will be people that if they have a, like an older child who is sick, they, you know, and I think this might be, uh, this is like A cultural thing because it happens a lot i think of black people where if so if one of the children is sick you know or even a parent is sick or a grandparent is sick like they don't really tell you know like the younger kids what's really going on you know like they don't they'd be like we have to like kind of shield them from it so because they won't understand but that's not the case with your sister like your sister is fully informed and she's very active in your life so i want you to talk about your sister first tyler and then i'll ask you a, a bit more questions about that Marlon.
1: For sure. Um, shout out Sky, Yay. my sister is the strongest person I know. Um, to put it short, <laughs> I think it wasn't something we could ever hide from her, especially because as a, when I was when I was growing up, like ages five through ten, I would have a lot of relapses. My face would be swollen majority of the time, so we just she just knew what was going on, and she'd accompany me to my my hospital visits as well. And she'd stay. She'd spend the nights with me in the hospital. But she played a huge part. And I don't think she, she proper understands even now the, the role she played. Throughout the, throughout the film, when you see these interviews of Sky and I, these different ages, it's because most of the time I was so used to only opening up to her. And that's why she's the main interviewer. She's like the key of everything, because I felt like despite everything going on, she was the the one pure ear that i could talk to and yeah she still remains by my side and i love her very much
0: and for you mara tell me about the choice of having sky be the person to ask him the questions in the documentary and make her such an integral part of the documentary because Um, like as Tyler just said, he opens up to her more than he does to other people. And that may have been an unconscious thing. Like I have a twin sister, so she's kind of like my confidant too, but she's not annoying me. She's not here, so she doesn't have to hear. But but you know, but it's it's important to have I think an important relationship with that with your siblings. But tell me about the choice of making her such an integral part in the documentary, but also having her be involved in the video the video vlogs from such a young age.
2: Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I'll tell you that um, what I learned was from going to different conferences that uh on nephrotic syndrome, where nephrologists would come in and talk. Um, I'd listen to other parents, talk to other parents. Um, and I learned that the majority of them, majority, two things, and this might be a little off topic, but one, I, le- I realized that a lot of the families, there were just the moms mm-hmm. because the dads had left, for lack of a better. I'm not going to you know sugarcoat it. Dads had left. I don't know from the stress of having a child with an illness or the financial stress or mental stress, et cetera. But a lot of were single moms, and a lot that had siblings, like you know they they had multiple children. The other children had a lot of behavioral problems. And the reason for that, as I would listen and listen to them, was that they spent so much time with their sick kids at the hospital, with doctors, et cetera, that they neglected their other kids. So my choice was, I'm going to involve Skylar as much as possible. And uh, I'm surprised Tyler didn't tell you what Sky used to do whenever he got his blood drawn. You
1: remember that, what she used to do, Tyler?
0: you get her done too?
1: She, um, she would, she would basically cause friction on my arm to, she'd give me pain on my other arm. Oh. She would so, pain.
2: Right. To make him not feel the, the pain from the needle. So, so basically from me listening and seeing that other kids were having problems because they weren't getting attention, mm-hmm. you know, so they were doing whatever they could normally negative things to get attention. So I was like, I'm gonna have her a part of the process. So she doesn't feel left out. So that was always my plan. Like I want, I don't want her to think she's less important or she doesn't get attention or she doesn't get, you know, oh and Tyler's sick, everything drops and we all have to go go to the hospital. I'm letting her come as well. So Mm -hmm. that was the main reason for that and i have to also say that i agree with tyler that skylar is the strongest person i also know so
0: that's great and yeah it's important to make sure the kids understand what's happening to their siblings because like when we were younger my sister was a uh, very she had asthma like really really bad she'd be going to the hospital like two or three days a week and, and she'd have to go we'd have to go to the er my mom would always bring us bring me with bring me along and I sit with my sister in the year while she was getting like um like respiratory therapy while she's sitting down there for like three four hours on a nebulizer. I was there, you know, and so and like when either when I got sick, my mom would bring my sister along, right? So it's the same. So I understand me because like it's it's about making sure that you give each child equal treatment as much as possible. But it's also I think I think it's also important to let the siblings understand what's going on. You know with their with their brother or their sister to let them see that this is why mom or dad has to focus a bit more when like there's a relapse occurring you know when there's like when the person is sick they're like okay i understand because they can see it for themselves right because i'm the kind of person i'm like secrets don't do nothing but just make things more difficult you know and and i think that's the one of the most important things for whether a child has a chronic illness or, or not is to for parents to be open with their children because that, that also stops there being friction between the siblings. Because that like, a lot of parents don't realize that when their children have friction as in the relationship, a lot of it has to do with the parents, you know, because the kids watch their parents and they they pick up on like things and, and they see and they do and they repeat. So like they might a, a sibling might pick on a, on a younger one or even an older one because they see something that their parent do- does and that kind of feeds off and influences their behavior, but a lot of parents don't recognize that so I would applaud you for recognizing that. say you know what I'm not going to do that because that would create more struggles for Skylar especially as being younger you know like so I think it's important that you didn't and I involved her in the documentary I like seeing her involved in the documentary she's also very funny (laughs) like when she was like okay enough about talking about your friends let's talk about this thing and moving on so I think she's very funny that way And and one of the things she moves on to like, this is the topic now of the, in the shed is the music because in the shed, the title of the film comes from um, a concept in jazz, in um, the jazz music sphere where the shed is like a place of, I guess you could say rumination for musicians to think about their music and feel the music and get involved with the music. So I want you to talk about having music be such an important part of your life, um, Tana, especially jazz music. And playing the the I believe it's the the bass guitar and like using music as a way to express yourself and a way to be in, and a way for to have something of your own you know like the music is is only yours in in this instance like that you don't have to focus on being sick you don't have to focus on school don't mind you're in school for music but you don't have like you know it's a it's a way out it's a way of escape and a coping mechanism and like kind of a form of therapy for you.
1: It's funny because normally when people. Find out I'm a musician, they're like, Oh cool, so like your parents are musicians, like you're from a musical family and <laughs> I always have to be like, No, <laughs> we are not no, I'm I'm just the odd man out. But I don't know, since picking up the saxophone in middle school and and listening to Jean Coltrane for the first time, it really struck me to my core. And I think one of my one of the moment i look back on a lot is when i when i held my first guitar for the first time and i didn't necessarily know what to do with it but i knew in my heart and in my spirit that i was like okay so like this is what i'm supposed to do you know and since then it's always been a vessel for me to express what i couldn't i remember um i was hospitalized a lot as well middle school and high school and all i would do would be looking at guitar videos and picking things up from different players and just excited to go back home to play guitar. And it came to the point that actually growing up, my mom had to, had to put a curfew on the refrigerator. So cause I'd, I would play guitar so much. And she'd be like, you have to stop at 1030 because you have to go to bed. And it's just, it's my first love. And it's something I, I love doing and it makes my soul very happy. And I'm happy that I get to, to have it and share it with people and it's a it's a beautiful thing
0: and tell me how this beautiful thing is is you're in school for music and like we've talked a bit about it before we began recording where and you're also in school for literature and when you're in school for music like how does that change the way you see music because like learning music I think um freestyle you know there's some people who never get formal education in music you know but they're like they're able to connect with music. I love music. I've taken a few classes in. I've taken classes to learn the violin. I haven't played it in years. I, I can't play anymore because of my fingers. But I like I love music. And music music for me is is an escape. And like people and it, it sounds pedantic, but music is one of the only, um, or if not probably is the only form of language where you don't need any interpretation for. It, you know, like anyone from anywhere around the world, like, can hear the same piece of music and they're able to, like, take something from it, and, like, you're able to communicate through music with people who don't speak your language. But when you're in school and you're learning now about the foundations of music, you're learning music theory, you know, you're learning about the history of music and, from and, like, people like um, John Coltrane or even, like, people like B.B. King, who was, like, a great jazz guitarist and, like, you know, Jimi Hendrix and all these kind of things, like, how has that changed your perspective at, on music itself, but then also as a musician?
1: definitely changed things especially because growing up i would have like one guitar instructor that i would see every other every like other month his name is mr kim shout out mr kim but
0: Uh, he was in the video right
1: he was and yeah i was so used to just doing my own thing i would just listen to a record and then i would just play that on guitar then at school i'd be the only guitarist so it would it would become my personality and then coming to school where there's this curriculum and I'm in a room with 20 other kids that were also the only guitarists in their school, it definitely changes things. Cause it's like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> who am I? And that was really hard for me to grapple with when I, when I first came here to New York. So every other person I'd meet would be a guitarist who also grew up listening to Jimi Hendrix and John mm-hmm. Coltrane and BB King. And I had a, had a bit of it, of an identity crisis because I was like, for so long, I was so used to attaching myself to the instrument. I don't know who I am without it. And going to music school and learning about the roots of music and music theory, I've learned that I'm not necessarily the guitar, but the guitar is an addition to who I am. You know, as much as I love doing it, it doesn't mean anything if I'm just the guitar, it's an extension of who I am. And that's why I fell in love with it for the, that's why, I, that's why I fell in love with music for the first, uh, I'm, I'm like stumbling on my words, but that's why I fell in love with music initially because it was an extension of myself. It wasn't who I was. It was something that I used to further express myself. So going to music school has really opened my eyes to, to identity, to who I am. And who,
0: and who do you see yourself, what do you see at yourself, what am I saying? How do you see yourself now? versus when you went to school when you first started going to school
1: i see myself a lot more mature um the other day i had a recital for my guitar class and it's about me two sophomores and then five freshmen and we were all going around in a circle playing guitar and it's funny i saw myself in each of them but there was this one particular freshman he took a seven minute long solo and it was loud, and it was crazy. He he like played behind his head at one point, which was funny because I used to like that was my thing back in back in high school. I'd always play behind my head, and it was so it was so crazy watching that because it was like whoa, like I I understand where you're coming from. And then it was my turn to play. I took a two minute solo and took my time. I I really like I felt it. And I don't think that's something I have ever had before, prior to coming to New York, but it's like, I, I feel the music I'm playing now with so much more, with so much more feeling. I'm, I don't know how to further express it, but I've learned it's a lot more quality over quantity. And that goes for so many things in life. And I just look at music in a much more mature way. I feel
0: to be mature yes that is a life lesson that many adults still have not learned it is quantity over quality that's like i will buy expensive shoes before i buy multiple cheap shoes different story i digress (laughs) but (laughs) and marlon like this is your first time making uh, a documentary and um almost like a full length film and like tell me about the structuring of the film and like how you use music as a way to like structure the film and like inspire you as a as a filmmaker uh, as a filmmaker because you're a filmmaker because like, you start in the beginning of the film with um Tyler playing at uh, Tyler and his band is <laughs> it it's Tyler and the is and the Handsome's right and they're playing and uh, you begin the story there but then you, you kind of backtrack and go back to the beginning and then you ended up you end back up again talking about his love of music and how music um affects him and like just like what he wants to do as a musician so talk about using Tyler's work as a musician and how that has it in, uh, influenced your work as a filmmaker and like making this documentary
2: well I knew um I knew I wanted to start you know how a lot of times films will start like kind of at the end mm-hmm. and then they work there then they then they begin and work their way back to where you started that I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to use it as bookends as far as what his passion is, which is music, but the real spine, so to speak of, there's many spines, but the real foundation, even of his music journey was his martial arts journey. That's where he learned uh, the discipline, the, the work ethic. And I think he would tell you that himself And learning to deal with different types of people, having different instructors, but that when so we when he started into music, a lot of what he learned, his foundation of martial arts, helped him flourish even more. So as far as dealing, having Mr. Kim who speaks limited English at best uh, as his music, as you talked about being music being universal and people, so that was interesting the few times I'd sit in and watch him teach Tyler, uh, to Mr. Williams, different instructors. So I knew I wanted to have music in the beginning and music at the end, because that's who he is or how he wants to convey how he's feeling, what's on his mind more so than talking, which, uh, which he doesn't really like doing that much. So, that's that's what I knew I wanted to do. And I also knew that I wanted to make something that was positive in nature to where at the end, people felt like, uh, man, I have no excuse for not accomplishing something or going to work out or because look at what he did. I didn't want to make something where everyone's crying like, oh, my God, this kid is look what he's gone through. Look what the family's gone through. I wanted to make something where people go like, wow, the glass is half full. And that was my goal. And so, okay, let me talk about the things in his life. Whereas the illness is just a part of it, but it's most definitely not front and center. So, that was my goal for people to, I mean, like, come on. Basically, I took a lot of those video vlogs and enter, cut them into a story that's 53 minutes, where now just on uh, the Amazon Prime US, it's 140 five-star reviews and if you read some of them it's really moving like it like you know the the vimeo reviews the amazon uk reviews the apple tv reviews all are five star all are and you know it's not a you know this was not where i used super expensive equipment and you see incredible stuff it's a story you know it's a story about a family it's a story about a family that's gone through a lot and uh I wanted them to feel like they were in our family. That's, that's what I wanted people to feel. I wanted them to feel at the end, like, wow, if this kid could do this, I could do this. Or so that was my goal. And it's always interesting to me because when different people uh, watch it or they'll contact me and I'm always curious of what people take away from it, because everyone takes away something different. You know, as you said, you know, you can listen to the same song and you hear it, I hear it, I hear this, you hear that, but we both have a feeling, so to speak. That's what I wanted people to have is a feeling, whatever that feeling might be. You know, to some, it was like, oh, my God, this dad is too much. The dad is doing too much, but I love everybody else. Or, you know, I really love the the sister. Or so everyone has something they take away from it. I'm just glad they take away something. That's better than they take away nothing and go like, wow, that was a waste of my time. So That was my goal. And that's a music, like he said, neither one of his parents are do anything with music. Uh, And, you know, truth be told he he would, I'd go to, I've gone to every single thing. Every one of my kids have done, both of them have done. And he would ask me, I'd go to a jazz thing and he'd say, dad, you know, did you like the music? And my response was always, I love, I love you son (laughs) because I don't like jazz music or any music so <laughs> what? so but i love my son so of course i'm always going to listen to whatever he does and and talk about it and promote him etc but no i'm not in the music but that's what i chose to do because i know that's what that's who he is
0: mm-hmm. yeah
2: how do you don't love music what do you no
0: no no yeah. no I get you kind of with the music. Like, I love jazz music, but I don't really like like improv jazz music. That is not my thing. All I'm hearing like boo booo, I like stop. I need something with structure. I need a beginning, a middle, <laughs> and an end. But no, I'm not.
2: <laughs> I'm not the music person though. <laughs> it's not happening.
0: I love. I love music. So like, I I'm, I'm with you on this, Tyler. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we're gonna begin to wrap up now. But I want to ask you. We want to ask the both of you. Like, what's next for both of you? I know Tyler, you're in school, but like. What's next for you on your journey? And like no, especially now that the film has been published and it's on these different platforms that your dad mentioned. Like, what is next for you?
1: Oh man, that's that's what I wanna figure out as well. It seems to be what everyone wants to know.
0: You
1: know, right. <laughs> I've I don't know, I just I just had an EP that I really I really love called Rosewood. Um I really enjoy all the words everyone is saying about in the shed and i'm just i'm having as much fun as i can and i'm living life to the fullest every day by practicing and going to class and just staying happy i i want to keep on just living day to day and see where see where the music takes me that's a very like broad answer but no it's perfect that's what i'm doing
0: It's perfect. Now, what about you, Marlon? Now that you are a filmmaker, you can call yourself a filmmaker, you're like, what is next for you?
2: Well, I I have to say what's next for Tyler is next month he has a very, very big event at the um, Chelsea Pier where he's going to be playing uh, for a... What's the organization, Son? Do you know?
1: It's the CARES Foundation.
2: Right. Uh, Which is for... uh, I forgot what illness they raise funds for, but he's going to be the featured musician there there in lovely new york city so uh hopefully for tyler he'll be doing a lot of things all related to what his passion is which will put him in a place where me and his mom can relax comfortably so uh
0: okay i okay i have one final just one final question that was at the back of my mind and i just remembered what it is so you said, and I and I understand what you mean. Where you said, you like your like your disease does not define you, right? It is not that's. It's just a part of you. It's just like a part of your. It's just a part of your life, but it is not who you are. But when you're, I think, but when you're basically an advocate for awareness of like a particular disease or like an advocate for awareness of like disabilities. And, and advocating for um about awareness of these of disabilities and people with disabilities and people with chronic illness like people do become you do become known to people for that you know like, like especially when you have like the website healingtyler.com and and that kind of stuff like when you when you when you know that you're not defined by your illness but that's how people kind of identify you because of your illness like how like how do you are you able to separate that and how are you able to process the way that people see you because of your illness
1: it was really hard um sometimes it still is really hard feeling like that's the main thing people take away from me especially those that see the documentary or browse through healing tyler you know even sometimes it's hard for me when I meet someone new and they're like, oh, yeah, like we saw you with Ronda Rousey as a child. Like you're the you're the sick kid. Right. And that that was always the worst. And I think it's having a strong sense of self. That's what's worked out the best for me, knowing who I am and how I perceive myself and how those closest to me know what's going on. Because if you don't really have that strong sense of self, I feel like your skin isn't that isn't that thick and however people define you, you're just going to stick with it. And it's really going to not even just affect how you see yourself, but affect how you see others. You know, you're going to be a lot more bitter, but I've been very fortunate to, to take that time and to see and to use patience and implement it in my life to, to know who I am and how I see myself and what my strengths and weaknesses are and things that define me. And yeah, things like, things like that.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And good luck. Le- oh, you want to do? oops. You um, want to finish off something there, Marlon?
2: Yeah. I wanted to say that um, from my perspective, like friends of mine that know Tyler, some people know Tyler for different reasons. Like mm-hmm. they know some people know Tyler only as the musician or, or specifically some people know Tyler only as the guitar player, the the jazz guitarist. but then there's people that know Tyler as the indie rock jazz singer for his singing stuff that's a whole different group of people then you have people that remember tyler just from jujitsu then you have people from the the chronic illness community or ne- the nef- nephrotic community who know him from that so a lot of times he'll have people i'll have friends of mine that don't know anything about his illness but they know about him because they follow his music and i'll and then they say, Oh my God, I just saw the documentary. I had no idea he was, you know, had an illness. So you have different groups of people that know him for different reasons. Uh, am I correct there, Tom?
1: Yes. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: So, uh, in reference to when you said, What am I doing now? I say that because even though, and I bet I, I'll backtrack, I grew up listening to Rod Stewart. So I'm a Rod Stewart person. So. <laughs> so uh, but as far as like if I'm at home or in the car, I don't really listen to music, no, never have. But in reference to what I do, I'm a coffee drinker, a massive coffee drinker, so I turned that into a business. I roast coffee, ransom coffee beans, it's relevant because what I decided to do was use Tyler's jazz notes to match the flavor notes of certain single origin coffees. So if someone goes to ransomcoffeebeans.com, shameless plug and they click on the uh Ethiopian natural single origin to see the description they will see a video of Tyler playing music and that those music notes that he chose will match the flavor notes of the coffee so that's what I do and I love coffee I love selling coffee I love roasting coffee uh so I'm a coffee snob nerd type person and I love it. So yes. that's. Incredible.
0: Okay. So I used to, okay, now that's now we have that in common. I used to be a barista. So I used to work at a cafe oh, okay. and, we used to, and we used to play at, um, so like I was trained as a barista and you know, I we used, we sold mostly Lavazza brand um, coffee. But yeah, so like I like, I can see the connection of the music because they call different coffee, like Arabica or whatever. They have different flavors and different yes. notes and depths and stuff. So that's, that's a way for you to connect to music, see you connected to the music.
2: What's your favorite single origin?
0: I'm not really a coffee drinker. I the only oh. reason I, no the no, because the only reason I drink coffee is like kind of for the taste. Like it doesn't make me hyper or anything. Coffee actually makes me sleepy, so I don't really drink. I don't really don't drink it that much that often. Um, but when I used to work at the cafe, like the arabica was my um arabica was my favorite, and I would usually make um like a uh cappuccino with it like and that was more my thing because i was my, I, my friends are like how are you not a coffee drinker working a i'm like it's a job okay mm-hmm. uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so my mine was probably like probably arabica yeah i haven't had the bats in years actually i've been drinking mostly like tim Burton's french vanilla but uh <laughs> But again, thank you so much to the both of you for speaking to me. This was so much fun. And it was great to learn about how multifaceted you are, Tyler, and also for you, Marlon, and your perspective as the director, also as, as his dad. And respect
2: it's- to your mom. Respect to your mom.
0: Yes, I will give her a call today. So you know what, mom? I appreciate you. I have to do that tonight.
2: Thank you for that.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
1: Thank you and so much.
0: Thanks. Oh. So everyone, that was another episode of Carolyn Talks for here's What happened podcast. And in this episode, I spoke to musician Tyler Ransom and his father, Marlon Ransom, for their film In the Shed, which is a documentary that Marlon created to chronicle Tyler's life and his experience with nephrotic syndrome, which is a chronic um, kidney disease, but also his love of jujitsu and music and how those... Those loves of Taylor of Tyler's life have helped him to live with this chronic illness that he has. But in the film, as as you heard Tyler say in this interview, and as his father said, that like it's about also about showing that his illness doesn't define him. And I think this is a film for people to learn again about this chronic illness and chronic senior because it's not it's a rare disease and it's not one that many people know exists and they are and they aren't educated about they aren't educated about it, but they also aren't educated about chronic illness as well, about how to see people who are either visibly or invisibly disabled, how to see them as people. So this is also a great documentary to show how the people with this disease and many other invisible illnesses live live full lives. You know, like Tyler, he does his jujitsu, he plays the saxophone, he plays the guitar, he has a band called... <laughs> Tyler and the Handsomes, you know he's a he's now a student at university and his dad is just showing this this amazing life that he's led and this amazing um, person that Tyler is so I think if the film is all is of course definitely worth seeing it's on different streaming platforms like Amazon he mentioned that on Vimeo and you can watch it on YouTube as well I'll provide the links for those in the description box and on my social media post when I posted. But thank you to, so much to Tyler and to Marlon for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate Marlon reaching out to me because if he hadn't, I wouldn't have known about this film and I wouldn't have known about Tyler and the work that he's doing and, and the life that he's led. And again, this is just in the example, like, you never judge a book by its cover. You know, me with my own chronic illness, I have had to remind myself, as sometimes I even forget that I'm chronically ill. which always ridiculous, but I, it happens sometimes. But It's just, again, which I think is also good because it just keeps me centered. I remind myself I am more than my disease, you know? And Tyler is more than his disease. And like everyone who has these kind of illnesses and has disabilities, we are more than our disabilities. So everyone, if you get the chance, please watch In The Shed. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at CarrieCNH12. You will find links to this episode of Carrie Talks. You can find... The video version of this episode of Carolyn Talks on my YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash at saying carolyn underscore Heinz. You can go to my R3 page, that's A-T-H-O-R-Y dot com slash Hines. that's H-I-N-D-S. And find links to other episodes of Carolyn Talks, other episodes of my YouTube channel, other episodes also of So Here's What Happened, which is my main podcast that I post with my friend Nisha Campbell, which is a monthly podcast we do where we discuss films TV shows, manga books comics all the good entertainment stuff and you can find links to all of my reading and you can find links to all of my published writing reviews analysis interviews and profiles and until then and I think that's it so until the next episode of Carly Talks everyone stay safe bye <laughs>